0: Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of campaign curiosities. I'm John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation. Did Ronald Reagan beat Jimmy Carter in the one and only debate in the 1980 presidential campaign because he had the Carter playbook beforehand? It seemed like a small moment in presidential history, this debate over whether Reagan had the Carter playbook, but as the presidential campaign of 2016 turned into a discussion of stolen emails from the Clinton campaign produced to the world by WikiLeaks, we returned to the whistle-stop vault to remind ourselves about this episode in 1980. It ultimately spawned a congressional investigation and a two-volume, 2400-page
1: Kroger, fresh for everyone, fuel restrictions apply.
0: Our whistle stop today is october twenty eighth nineteen eighty and Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan are sparring off in their first and only presidential debate. It's a week before the election. Can you imagine one debate, no early voting, and it's a week before the election, and all the voting takes place. The stakes were high, and the winning line of the night came about an hour and fifteen minutes and thirty seven seconds to be precise into the contest. We'll start with Carter and then listen for Reagan's winning line.
1: In the past, the relationship between Social Security and Medicare has been very important to provide some modicum of aid for senior citizens in the retention of health benefits. Governor Reagan as a matter of fact began his political career campaigning around this nation against Medicare. Now we have an opportunity to move toward national health insurance with an emphasis on the prevention of disease, an emphasis on outpatient care, not inpatient care, an emphasis on hospital cost containment to hold down the cost of hospital care for those who are ill, an emphasis on catastrophic health insurance, so that if a family is threatened with being wiped out economically because of a very very high uh, medical bill, then the insurance would help pay for it. These are the kind of elements of a national health insurance important to the American people. Governor Reagan, again, typically is against such a proposal. Governor, there you go again.
0: How does that line strike you? If you weren't following the election or watching the debate, I'm not sure how it translates. Nevertheless, that line, there you go again, has its own Wikipedia entry, though I must say the entry is... Pretty weak. The one about the uh, tribbles on uh, Star Trek is far more expansive, though, to be fair, it's a much more important topic to the Republic. This line, there you go again, reminds us that a lot of what works in debates has to do with the theater of the moment. A single answer also comes to symbolize a kind of greater idea conveyed by the debate in the future telling of the debate. So in this case, the idea was that Reagan wasn't a hothead he seemed to have a command of the issues during the debate and he wasn't as over the top as carter and his campaign had been claiming in the days running up to the debate and then in in the debate itself this was a substantive critique of reagan and reagan responded to that critique with a style with this kind of winning line and what he responded to was a distortion in his positions and it was if you watch the debate from the beginning it was about the 10th or so distortion that evening he'd been repeatedly doing this and so when he said there you go again it was because there had been an accretion of these claims that carter had made and yet even though it was the tenth time the california governor with the brill creamed hair uh responded with ease and with a smile and he was showing that he wasn't the caricature that had been painted of him this hothead kind of person who was going to get us into a nuclear war and Carter, on the other hand, didn't look so agreeable. He looked a little strict and and um, and pinched. He looked like a president of the United States in a bind, not a president of the United States who had uh, who had control of the moment. Tight as a drum that Carter looked. Here's how Carter wrote about the moment and that Reagan line in his diary on the entry for October 28th. This is Carter. In the debate itself, it was hard to judge the general demeanor that was projected to the viewers. Reagan was, oh, shucks, this and that. I'm a grandfather, and I would never get this nation into a war, and I love peace. He has his memorized tapes. He pushes a button, and they come out. He apparently made a better impression on the TV audience than I did. But I made all our points to the constituency groups, which we believe will become preeminent in the public's mind as they approach the point a week from now of actually going to the polls. Both sides felt good after the debate. We'll see whose basic strategy is best when the returns come in next Tuesday. So that's what Carter wrote in the moment, that Reagan seemed to have a tape that he played in his head. The actor, knowing his lines, beep, pressed the button, and out came the the lines. Not just that line, the famous one, there you go again, but all the previous answers that he gave. Now, here's what Carter writes, the italicized portion of the diary. Here's what he writes later in the book So what I just read was the actual, what he wrote in the moment, this is what he wrote later. On balance, Reagan clearly gained from this single exchange, alleviating previous public concern that he would engage our country in war, introduce an extreme right-wing political philosophy, cut social programs, and create huge deficits. The debate provided me with my last opportunity to overcome the negative effects of the hostage crisis. You remember the American hostages in Iran, which we'll talk about later. And though I was generally pleased with my effort, it was not sufficient to improve my position in the race. One more paragraph from Carter on this. In June of 1983, it was reported that a copy of my confidential briefing book had been stolen from the White House and delivered to the Reagan campaign team prior to the debate. The report was that Reagan's aides had used the notes to prepare my opponent to counteract my planned debate tactics. Ah, well, that's the story we're going to follow here, the debate briefing book and what happened to it where we get to the who done it uh, the other substantive thing about this debate and that's important in our who done it is that Reagan seemed ready at, at to, for every Carter crack on him whether it was about minimum wage or nuclear weapons or Social security he had a proper policy response so he was all shucks but he was also saying things like on minimum wage when Carter said you don't support a minimum wage and that's heartless Reagan said no I don't support a minimum wage because it might hurt jobs, but for younger people, I do support a minimum wage. He was constantly taking the sharp edges of Carter's characterization of his views and then sanding them down, making them seem just fine. So that's stylistically what he did, and then substantively, that's also what he was doing. So one other funny thing about this debate is that the, the that line... There you go again, was in the last paragraph of the AP story, which just provides us yet again with lesson number 343 in the whistle stop lesson plan that moments that come to define a debate often define the debate in the post telling, not in the moment. When Lloyd Benson uncorked that stinger at uh, at Dan Quayle, you know, Jack Kennedy, everybody in the moment knew what was up with that. But there are other things that, uh, that live on and become the story after the debate that aren't in the initial analysis. But the reason I fixate on that line, and it's other than its place in the pantheon of all-time great debate lines, is that years later, it was learned that Carter's debate briefing materials were, had been purloined by the Reagan debate team. Robert Strauss, in 1983, when it was discovered that the debate book had been stolen, and that's three years after the actual debate, said, there you go again, Robert Strauss said in a Washington Post story. Robert Strauss was the Democratic Party chairman and a gigantic power broker in Washington. I thought of that line as soon as I heard about how our debate book was used to get Reagan so on top of things. Now, in 2016, inside information from the Clinton campaign has been hacked by the Russians and sent to to WikiLeaks and the Clinton team says it's just like Watergate. And that argument isn't getting a lot of traction, but it's true that we'd react differently if the documents were stolen out of the office and handed over. So what norm would we look to if the documents were stolen? Well, in, in any case, what norm do we look to for the Absolutely beneficial use that the Trump campaign is making of the WikiLeaks disclosures. How do we know whether this is just like somebody breaking into the headquarters of the campaign and stealing documents and then making use of them? We would react much more strongly to that, probably, both in the press and the public. So what norms do we look to? Well, there are two moments. One is this Carter briefing book, but the other, and we'll talk about this at the end, was a similar event that took place in 2000 campaign with Al Gore. The question at the time in 1983 was whether it was unethical to simply take material, which in that case meant, you know, breaking through the sash, picking the mako lock on the door and rifling through the filing cabinets, or if it was simply unethical to use material you didn't have any business owning, but that you didn't take yourself, the fruit of the poison tree, as it were. Politics, of course, is about stealing power, but in the American system, and so all campaigns are about You know, trying to do everything they can to get that power, which means that campaigns are not, to use the cliche, beanbag. But the American system operates within some loose rules. Everybody agrees to the rules of the game, at least at some level, because they realize that if you play too dirty, you upend the underlying argument, which is that campaigns are supposed to be a peaceful transition of power. And if all bets are off, everyone is making their own rules, then you have anarchy. And this is what In another context, Donald Trump is flirting with when he says that the election is rigged. He's perfectly entitled to complain that the press coverage isn't good. But when he incites his supporters by suggesting that they're being cheated, he's flirting with taking all norms away because there's no evidence that they're being cheated and therefore inviting riots and anarchy. But that's a little bit of a separate matter. The parallel here I'm trying to Hammer home, and it's not exact, is whether it's okay to use the WikiLeaks material if it was obtained illegally, even though, of course, the Trump campaign's not connected with the illegal gotten gains. And that was the question that in 1983 was alive with respect to this briefing book, that the Carter briefing book that the Reagan people got. Should the Reagan team have restrained them st- themselves when they got the goods, even if they didn't break into an office? to get the goods themselves. So we should say in 1983, there was already a little bit of a history of this in the book Running for President by uh, Martin Schramm. He reported that uh, that an assistant to Mo Udall, who was a Democrat from Arizona, who was trying to win the presidential nomination for the Democratic Party, refused an offer of Carter's campaign files from a recently fired Carter aide. Not only did Udall, who was running against Carter in 76, obviously, not only did U- Udall's campaign aide refuse the information, but then he called Hamilton Jordan, Carter's top aide, and gave him the name of the disgruntled ex employee. At the 76 National Convention, according to Richard Reeves's book, Convention, one of Carter's aides spiked a plan by another group of Carterites to install a sophisticated electronic equipment in, in Madison Square Garden that would have allowed the Carter team to monitor the internal communications of others in the hall, including the television networks. Now, that didn't have to do with a arrival, but it had to do with underhanded behavior in the pursuit of power. And what we're trying to do here is figure out what the norms are. And so those were two previous cases before the Carter briefing book theft that give us some sense of the norms. Okay, so where and how did this all come up? And why is there a difference between October 28, 1980, when the debate takes place, and 1983, when this suddenly becomes an issue. Well, the narrative jumps over that three-year period because this story didn't come out until three years after the debate. Reagan's already president, and it came out in a story, uh, or in a book, called Gambling with History. that's a book by Larry Barrett, who was a correspondent, the White House correspondent for Time magazine, whose office in the Washington Bureau was once occupied by yours truly. I moved into Larry's office when I came to Washington in 1995. And Larry was a wonderful guy. And even before I came to Washington, I had bought Gambling with History. Of course, that was in 1994. So that was 11 years after it was published. But it was there in the Strand bookstore in that room down in the basement where they kept all the political books. Those political books, which have become so much a part of these Whistle Stop podcasts. But anyway... What I love about the story is that Larry (laughs) apparently had it back in 1980 when the campaign was still going on, but he couldn't get it in the magazine. Now, anybody out there who ever worked for Time magazine or a news magazine in general in that period where you didn't have the Internet and you could just print anything you wanted at any length you wanted, this rings true because also there were some times that your editors in New York might miss something of great piece of great reporting that you had that they couldn't fit into the limited space in the physical magazine. In 2004, I spent the night at the Bush headquarters in 2004, the only reporter there, watching the campaign as it got the first wave of exit polls that showed Kerry ahead, sinking into despair. It was going to be the defeat of an incumbent president. And then through the course of the day and well into the evening and as the sun came up the next morning, seeing both the exit polls and the returns, come in better and the rising sense of optimism and joy in the Bush campaign as they realized they weren't going to lose. I was the only one there taking down two notebooks full of notes of all the chaos and mayhem going on. None of it got in the magazine because there just wasn't the space. Anyway, when Larry's book came out in 83, it was about the first two years of the Reagan administration. So the note about the debate briefing book was a bit of a passing note. The charge was that the Reagan team had received hundreds of pages of briefing material from the Carter team. And when this came out in 83, it set off a firestorm because the people involved in Reagan's debate prep were at the top of the White House and the the administration. You had James Baker, who's the chief of staff. You had William Casey, who was the director of the CIA, who had been the manager of the Reagan campaign. You had David Gergen who was the director of communications in the Reagan White House, and you had David Stockman, who was the director of Office of Management and Budget. In June of 1983, when this comes out, in Larry's book, Mark Shields, who could be one of the kindest, all-around nicest human beings in the world, liberal columnist, writes a piece that asks, did Reagan's confidence, that's confidence in the debate, come from the fact that he knew what Carter was going to say before he said it? So Shields has already expanded the field of inquiry from not just did Reagan have that pre-cooked line ready to go because he knew what Carter was going to do, but did he have a greater sense of confidence because he knew all of the lines of attack that Carter was going to make. Here's how Shields uh, reminds readers of the stakes at the time. Here's Mark in his fun way of writing. For any popularly elected executive, whether the mayor of Dubuque or the president of the United States, there are basically only two available ways to run for re-election, the high road and the not-so-high road. The campaign message from the candidate who chooses the high road sounds like this. Look at the progress we have made, what we have accomplished during this term. Give me another term and we will finish the job. By contrast, the not-so-high-road approach does not trumpet achievements, but concentrates instead on the alleged character and or intellectual defects of the incumbent's opponent. Its campaign message sometimes acknowledges the incumbent's own imperfections, as in, "'I may be no day at the beach, but the other guy is no month in the country.'" For reasons that seemed obvious at the time, Jimmy Carter's 1980 presidential election campaign pursued the not-so-high road approach, emphasizing that Ronald Reagan was a reckless hardliner on poor Americans and on red Russians and perhaps not playing with a full deck in those subjects a president was expected to master. The objective was to make Reagan look threatening and dangerous to voters. So going into the debate, the other thing was those are the stakes. But the narrowing, narrowing, it was quite a close race. Reagan was down by six points in mid-October in uh, 19—he was down 45-39 in in the Gallup numbers. So here you have Reagan uh, at this very close moment taking on a sitting president, which was a bit of a gamble. Stakes are high. I guess what we're doing really here is loading the dramatic weight on this debate moment. And I think the polls— bear that out. When you look at the Gallup poll, the movement from from Reagan, who was down six in the middle of October to being ahead, looks like a rocket ship taking off when you look at the polling over the course of the campaign. Carter had been up basically until June, and then he was down well through August. Middle of August, it's run kind of parallel. Then he goes up in September and October, and then Reagan has that zoom at the end so, was that Zoom the result of the debate, and was the debate performance so perfect because they knew exactly what Carter was going to say? Shields also makes another charge. He links the elevation of Reagan's staffers to their success in helping him prepare for that debate. Here's what Shields writes. David Stockman, who played the part of Carter in the pre-debate scrimmages, so impressed Reagan that he was eventually named budget director. The debate negotiations and preparation were handled so well by Jim Baker that Baker, in spite of his earlier work for Gerald Ford and George Bush, ended up as White House Chief of Staff. David Gergen, the present White House Communications Chief, and like Baker, an unoriginal Reaganaut, was deeply involved in the debate preparations. The lives and futures of all four men were all changed by that debate. Mark Shields helping us in the furloughing of more weight on this debate moment. Even though the disclosure of this debate briefing book thing was long after the election had been decided, the post-Watergate interest in cleanliness in politics was very heavy, and there was a Democratic Congress. (laughs) And let's add one more thing to give this moment a little bit more of a pop in 1983 than you might otherwise expect it might have had, is that in addition to the fact that there was a post-Watergate interest in cleanliness, there was a Democratic Congress willing and anxious and able to look into the behavior of a Republican president, but also there was infighting in the Reagan White House that gave rise to this little mini-scandal. Now, this wasn't an Iran-Contra-level scandal, but it was one that did produce an FBI investigation, and as I said, this 2,400-page, two-volume Congressional Report. It was also one of the third events to get the gate designation. The first was Billy Gate about President Carter's brother lobbying for Libya. Then there was Korea Gate about a guy named Tungsten Park who was influence peddling for the Korean government or Korean interests anyway, buying favors from members of Congress. And this would now become known as debate gate. Everything gets a gate now. But this was in the early days of the gating. This overhang of the Watergate years and the fact that Reagan's a Republican and Nixon was a Republican was why you started to read quotes in the paper when this was disclosed in uh, June of 1983. We're handling this 100 percent different from Watergate, said an administration official in The New York Times. The Nixon people tried to hide something, but we're sending every scrap of stuff over to the Justice Department as soon as we find it. But already you could see the split in the Reagan administration in the way that people in the Reagan administration were responding to it. Not everybody was on that same message. The previous message you heard was probably something closer to what Jim Baker was thinking. Baker being the kind of Washington insider who took the whole rules and establishment process seriously. But Ed Meese, who came in from California with Reagan and would have his own ethical troubles later in the administration, had a good joke about it when the story was first popping in the papers. Here's an account from the New York Times. Frank Kleins wrote on June 26. President Reagan's counselor, Edwin Meese III, tried humor the other day as he flew on Air Force One and faced questions about the advanced debating information that Reagan partisans somehow obtained in 1980 from the camp of President Carter. No whitewashing, Mr. Meese responded, referring to questions about the affair. Gergen is not a crook. He said, mirthfully echoing Watergate phraseology in defending the president's director of communications, David R. Gergen, a principal in the debate preparations. We didn't see a mole the entire campaign, Meese added. In New Hampshire, we didn't even see a groundhog. Mr. Meese was making light of the Capitol's latest buzzword, mole, as in Counter spy—the shorthand reference to the rumored informer in the Carter campaign, suspected of handing over a book full of debating points that Reagan stalwarts used for tuning up their candidate. Okay, well, so the idea, of course, of the mole in the uh, in the White House captured the attention of of Washington gossips. Larry Speaks, Reagan's spokesman. Yes, that was his name. His spokesman's name was Speaks. He was succeeded by Frank Podium Talker, and then Larry. Next question. Here's what Speaks was saying. He said, well, this, there's nothing new in politics. This is the way politics works. But that's not, of course, the way politics works. So you had multiple messages coming from the Reagan White House. And of course, everybody wanted to know what Reagan knew and when did he know it. But the White House said, foreshadowing a, a response they would give repeatedly during the Reagan years, and then specifically with respect to the Iran-Contra affair, that Reagan didn't really pay attention to details, So he wouldn't have been in a position to know what was going on with his debate team. In addition to the FBI investigation, there was also a formal investigation started by the Committee on Post Office and Civil Service investigation in the House. It would start in July of 83 and go through April of 84. At first, the administration answers were lame. The Democrats uh, also, by the way, urged the appointment of a special prosecutor, which they did not do. But basically, Carter folks started to cry foul, and they charged that because Reagan knew Carter's plan of attack on each issue he could avoid the sort of gaffe that he would have made if he'd been caught off guard the reason this was so important is as a political matter how Reagan and his team responded in 1983 would affect Reagan in 1984 so this was not just about what the campaign did in 1980 but how they handled the issue in the present moment in 1983 it wasn't just a kind of gossipy story there was also the possibility of criminal activity if 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 the Reagan team had knowingly stolen white house property and or offered any money or anything else or future jobs in exchange for the documents, that would have been criminal behavior. So you have how, they, how they're going to handle it in 18, 1983. And then, of course, there's just the sort of character question in 1980. Reagan and Baker and Gergen were veterans of previous White Houses. So they would have known what it meant to get White House material from the Carter administration. And they probably should have said, we well, would get this the hell out of here. So at first, the Reagan White House is, is responding with these multiplicity of responses, and their explanations to the House subcommittee were not that satisfying. Baker's first response was that he saw no evidence that the document was, quote, sufficiently sensitive to have been controlled or closely held, and that the book did not seem to be, quote, an official document. So basically, he's trying to dodge this idea that this was sensitive White House information. It really wasn't worth much. They sort of downplayed what they had. William Casey, the campaign manager and CIA director, said he had no recollection of the briefing book, which contained a number of Carter's anti-Reagan attack lines, those attacks that Reagan seemed to be so well briefed for. The reason the answer seemed weak is that there was already a partial admission, which meant that the others had a tough time saying, well, I don't know, because... In 1980, OMB director David Stockman admitted he bragged about it, basically, in 1980. And it was recorded at the time by the Elkhart Truth, which is the (laughs) name of a newspaper, that covered a speech that Stockman gave to the Optimist Club, where the sun is always shining and the gin is always very good. Anyway, uh, in that speech, Stockman bragged about having had the Carter debate materials. So you have some of the White House staff... Trying to come up with a new kind of story. Meanwhile, at the other end of the investigation, the members of Congress were looking for the mole inside the Carter administration. And here is a story from the Chicago Tribune about the mole inside. The probability of multiple moles has caused considerable concern within the White House. While it is easy to assume that there was one disgruntled Carter staffer who decided on his own to unload some documents to the Reagan headquarters, it is more difficult to believe that a number of employees would take the same risky step unless they were solicited or offered something in return. There were few clues as to the motives of the mole or moles until last Tuesday when Alabasta, it's the name of the congressman who is uh, running the investigation in, in the uh, congressional committee, told reporters that his subcommittee was investigating the possibility that sexual favors were traded in exchange for the information. Sex scandals have become a Washington mainstay. More often than not, after a few splashy headlines, they tend to fizzle, which was one reason why Albosta's contention was greeted with skepticism. Apparently, the congressional investigators are checking reports of romantic links between Carter and Reagan staffers during the campaign. While it is thought that such relationships did exist to establish that they were based on a quid pro quo of documents for sex would seem to be next to impossible. So uh, we should also say that there was also the charge that the sex in the sex scandal uh, was not just heterosexual relations, but that there may also have been. Homosexual affair, which at the time I mention only because that would have added a greater level of trickiness uh, to the story in an age where many of the people involved in both parties were still in the closet. The other element here going is that Debate Gate became a venue for a bitter inside battle in the Reagan White House between Jim Baker, the chief of staff, and William Casey, the former Reagan campaign manager and now director of the CIA. So why was there a fight? Well, there was a fight throughout the whole Reagan presidency uh, between the kind of true blue conservative Reaganauts and the establishment types. So we see that obviously playing out today in the Republican Party. Casey was a true blue Reaganaut. Conservatives saw him as their champion in the administration. Baker had come from bushland, which conservatives, you know, were totally suspicious of, thought he was basically like an inside guy who wasn't going to make the revolution happen. So they wanted to see Baker gone. So in that context, Baker then responds to the committee and basically says, all I remember of the documents is I got them from Casey. Well, Casey had told the committee I wouldn't have touched those documents with the 10-foot bowl. I don't know anything about them. So here you have in public a split between... The chief of staff of the White House and the director of the CIA, like two totally different stories. And they both. I mean, it's not just like, oh, well, these are two random different stories. This is here's how conservative columnists Robert Novak and and Roland Evans wrote about the discrepancy in these two stories and what it meant for this ongoing White House intrigue about Baker versus Casey. By publicly igniting the animosity between James Baker and William Casey that had been quietly simmering for more than a year, the Carter briefing book affair may accidentally force a resolution in the long-divided White House of Ronald Reagan. More is at stake than who who was responsible for obtaining and using material from Jimmy Carter's campaign. Even if the FBI investigation does not nail one or the other as culpable, well-informed insiders believe President Reagan cannot follow his instincts and avoid a choice this time. Their conduct towards each other the past two weeks means that either White House Chief of Staff Baker or Director of Central Intelligence Casey will have to go, according to Reagan Advisors. To the Washington establishment, that is the easiest of choices. Lobbyists, bureaucrats, and especially the news media are grateful that Baker's accumulated power blunted the Reagan revolution's full effects, and view Casey as a doddering incompetent on the fringes of power. But Reaganite conservatives see Casey as their last chance to remove Baker's restraint on Reaganism going into the re-election campaign. The Rollins and Novak piece openly speculated about Baker and Casey fighting a proxy war in the way this briefing book Theft was being investigated, and their column included this fun line. A less benign explanation for Baker's bluntness, brooded about at the White House, is his low opinion of Casey's ability to retaliate. One of the least articulate figures in public life at age 70 and famed for eccentric body language, such as chewing on his tie during a heated meeting, Casey is easy to underestimate. <laughs> Excuse me, I was just chewing on my tie there. Casey, of course, retaliates. He goes to the New York Times for a little sit-down interview and makes clear that Baker had been the one delegated responsibility for the 1980 debate. And as such, must take responsibility for the question of who took the briefing material. So all of this bounces along. The investigation is going on. The White House is being somewhat vague. You've got this open warfare between Baker and Casey, and in comes the copy boy. In September of 1983, a college student named Mark Ashworth, who worked in Reagan's 1980 campaign, told the committee that he had photocopied the Pilfer debate papers on a Kodak duplicating machine, and he delivered them to James Baker. Ashworth testified for 14 hours, and he, so he provided the first direct link between Baker, and then the debate manager, and the debate materials. Baker, of course, had told the committee that he had gotten it from Casey. So this is the way that Novak and, and Evans wrote about it later. Until Ashworth's testimony, again, we're in September of 83, there was nothing that the Albosta subcommittee investigators had come up with implicating Baker, or anyone else for that matter. They complained that the 1980 Reagan staffers were habitually afflicted with forgettery when it came to discussing the debate documents. There's one other wrinkle that comes in and around this part. Richard Allen, Reagan's first national security advisor, disclosed that he received the information that went into the briefing books that went to the debate Managers for Reagan from somebody on Carter's NSC staff, and he fingered an actual employee to the committee, uh, and he said this out loud on Nightline. But it turns out the employee that he fingered was ones that had caused Allen to lose his job. Allen was caught with a, about a thousand dollars in his office safe, which was it was allegedly paid to him by a Japanese journalists for access. So the person that Allen had fingered had been the one who had busted Allen and had him resign as Reagan's first national security advisor. So that little cul-de-sac didn't solve anything or didn't but what it did do is put the focus in the moment on the National Security Council and that's where it should have been because that's where this administration in- information from the Carter team that's how it got to the Reagan folks. And we know this because of the April 1983 report from the House subcommittee. And here's what that report told us. First of all, there was more than one briefing book that went from Carter to to uh, Reagan. But it all didn't travel by the same route. So there was a more, there wasn't, this wasn't a one-off. And I'll just quote from the subcommittee report. The subcommittee believes that it has received responses from some of these persons that were not candid. This prevented the subcommittee from fully resolving the briefing book issue. The subcommittee finds that the better evidence indicates that the Carter debate briefing materials entered the 1980 Reagan-Bush campaign through its director, William J. Casey, and that Casey provided Carter debate briefing materials to James Baker, as stated by Baker, whose testimony is corroborated by a credible witness. This subcommittee does not agree with the Department of Justice's surprising conclusion that any seeming inconsistency in witness statements could be explained by differences in recollection or interpretation. So the subcommittee is weighing in on Baker v. Casey. Casey had the stuff first and then handed it to Baker. So they were both involved, but Casey was the initiator. So now the subcommittee also ups the ante here because, remember, one of the underlying questions is, were these just campaign materials or were the government materials? The subcommittee concludes that in the main, the Carter and Mondale briefing papers found in the Reagan-Bush campaign were the property of the federal government. And thus, disagrees with the Department of Justice conclusion that no government documents are among the briefing materials that were obtained by the Reagan campaign. Federal employees participated in the production of those briefing materials, and so did government and on government time, worked on them in government owned space, and used government owned equipment to prepare them. During the 1980 campaign, the White House counsel was of the opinion that these documents, in large part, were government property. Now, that's important because they're taking a shot at the Reagan Department of Justice. But it's also important because it raises the stakes on what was turned over. Also included in the report was a little more detail about David Stockman, who had been the one who bragged about having the Carter briefing book back in 1980, and was recorded in that local paper. What Stockman said was in the in the material was what he called quote white lies, involving inflation, the Reagan Kemp Roth tax plan, which would ultimately get passed, a big reduction in tax. Uh, rates. White lies about energy and Reagan's position on it and the character of Governor Reagan as extremist and a warmonger. The Elkhart Truth, which is the newspaper who reported on Stockman's uh, comments in 1980, reported that, quote, apparently the Reagan camp's pilfered goods were correct, as several times both candidates said almost word for word what Stockman predicted. The line of attack was exactly like the Michigan representative said it would be. Stockman was a congressman from Michigan. So the subcommittee report puts a final period on this idea that Reagan didn't just know Carter was going to attack him and therefore could roll out that pre-program, there you go again line. He knew all of the assaults that were coming. He could diffuse them by disagreeing, but then more important, had studied the policy responses that would show that he had a different opinion, but he had his own version of legislation that he supported to, that would ameliorate whatever problem Carter was criticizing him for having no answer to at all. It gave Reagan a sense of confidence, but it also meant he basically knew how to rebut each charge along the way, which gave him a kind of thoroughgoing going appearance of being well briefed and on his game. And it is fascinating when you watch that debate, when you look at Reagan's answers on things, I mean, he uses statistics and reports and backs up all the assertions he makes with proof as if that were what you were supposed to do, which when you compare that to Donald Trump's answers at a debate, which is just assertion after assertion with no fact at all, just shows you how far we've come. The other fascinating part of the subcommittee's report was the discovery of William Casey's October surprise effort, which was a thorough two committees at least involved in this process, which was the inside effort in the Reagan campaign to thwart or at least get ahead of. Anything that the Carter campaign might do at the last minute to save the Iranian hostages and give Carter a boost in the campaign, that would at the last minute push him over the edge into victory. And so the Casey folks had been working every day at 6 o'clock in the Skyline house. They would wake up or they would have a meeting and talk about what the latest intelligence they could get out of the Carter operation was so that they could figure out if Carter was going to hatch a secret October surprise to help him in the campaign. And so they needed basically to spy on the National Security Council. And so the committee determined that that's basically where the information came from, that there was Casey had had set up in the Reagan shop an operation to do as much as they could to basically get information out of the Carter White House, including, by the way, scheduling information for Carter so that they could have what they called truth squads, where they would zoom surrogates into wherever Carter was going to have a An event, And their surrogates would be able to rebut whatever Carter had said, get into the local news story and and create a bit of a stir. The reason this is important, of course, is the committee in studying what Casey was up to found there was an operation in place to get clandestine information and material. And that, of course, is the operation that then got these briefing books. Now, remember, the key distinction in the beginning was, okay. It's one thing to take it yourself. It's another thing to just benefit from a thing that has been taken. Well, what the committee found was that on September 12th, 1980, Casey was there their minutes from a meeting in which basically Casey is telling the October Surprise Group that in this process of looking out for any effort Carter might be doing, that they should go for non-public information. In other words, there's there's notes in the minutes that this is what Casey had the committee in as a part of the campaign was was not to go steal stuff for the briefing book, but to take stuff that wasn't public for the purposes of preparing for any October surprise. So with that kind of a dragnet going on, um, it was natural for them to come across then the briefing books because they were sifting and trying to get links inside the Carter NSC. And so this this traveled on that highway, which was set up for another purpose. However, <laughs> subcommittee figured all this out, but it couldn't figure out who in the Carter land had, in fact, given the stuff to who in the Reagan land. So they couldn't nail an actual culprit. Uh, And there are many instances in this huge, long report where they say things like, the documented issue is another example where professed lack of recall has made it impossible for the subcommittee to answer all relevant questions. So basically, they learned that this was going on. They learned about the October uh, surprise committee. And yet they couldn't finger the actual, you know, Joe that gave to Jane or otherwise. So the report came out. No one was fired. Everything went on. As planned, Reagan was reelected in 1984. In the 2000 presidential debate, we had another moment of this. Thomas Downey, who was a former Democratic congressman from New York who was advising Vice President Gore's campaign, received a big old binder in the mail. And in that was a videotape, a practice videotape of Bush practicing for the debate and 120 pages of confidential debate documents. Now, what did Mr. Downey do? He dropped it like a hot potato. He turned the materials over to the Federal Bureau of Investigation and quit the campaign debate effort. So, big difference. It turned out later, after the FBI did their investigation, that the binder and the videotape had been sent, sent by a woman, Juanita Lozano, who was worked for Mark McKinnon, who was Bush's media advisor now executive director of the circus on Showtime and many other wonderful things. Um, Anyway, this person who worked for him uh, admitted, so what they did is they basically had uh, videotape from uh, a local, I can't remember if it was UPS or the post office, anyway, had videotape of McKinnon's staffer mailing these materials. And when she was confronted with it, she said, oh, I was just just mailing Mark some pants. Um, Mark did not the record will reflect, have any previously known deficit in the pants category. Anyway, the staffer was ultimately did a plea deal, was sentenced uh, to a year in prison and $3,000 in fines. So anyway, that's quite a different way of responding to being given debate material. Finally, one other little coda to the story here is that even though Reagan had a Debate briefing book that helped him, almost undoubtedly, helped him in the debate. Not all of his lines were real humdingers. Here's one that, in the moment and even in this course of history, really doesn't seem like a big winner.
1: I know the president is supposed to be replying to me, but sometimes I have a hard time in connecting what he's saying with what I have said or what my positions are. I sometimes think it's like the witch doctor that gets mad when a good doctor comes along with a cure that'll work. Be my point I have made already.
0: But as a person writing under the Twitter handle 50s and 60s pointed out, there you go again overshadowed clunkers like the Witch Doctor clunker. So, as this Twitter correspondent pointed out, when you go one for four with a grand slam, all the other at-bats don't matter. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must-not-take-yourself-too-seriously and... since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. For Whistle Stop, I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. We'll be back with you in a couple of weeks just before the end of the 2016 election comes to us all. We'd love to hear what you think about Whistlestop. Send us an email at podcasts at slate.com or even better, leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Head over to uh, that iTunes.com slash slate podcast. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Our executive producer of Panoply Podcasts is Steve Lichtai and our chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Whistlestop is a part of the Panoply Network check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Our Whistle Stop Crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who has a replica of the Kodak duplicating machine used in the Reagan campaign and delivers me a binder of research material each week that explains why I always beat Jimmy Carter in the debates. Thanks again for listening. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation.